Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from a sermon that was once preached by Charles Spurgeon. This message is from a collection of Spurgeon messages created by Perry Boardman, known as Spurgeon's Gems. Today's message is from Volume 1, Number 39. The entire message is entitled Heaven and Hell. We will read the section about heaven today. The passage of scripture that Mr. Spurgeon uses is Matthew 8, 11, and 12. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This message was delivered on Tuesday evening, September 4, 1855, in a field, King Edward's Road, in Hackney, England. This is a land, he says, where plain speaking is allowed, and where the people are willing to afford a fair hearing to anyone who can tell them that which is worth their attention. Tonight I am quite certain of an attentive audience for I know you too well to suppose otherwise. This field, as you are all aware, is private property. And I would just give a suggestion to those who go out in the open air to preach that it is far better to get into a field or a plot of unoccupied building ground than to block up the roads and stop business. It is, moreover, far better to be somewhere under protection so that we can at once prevent disturbance. Tonight I shall, I hope, encourage you to seek the road to heaven. I shall also have to utter some very sharp things concerning the end of the lost in the pit of hell. Upon both these subjects I will try and speak as God helps me, but I beseech you, as you love your souls, weigh right and wrong this night. See whether what I say be the truth of God. If it is not, reject it utterly and cast it away. But if it is, at your peril disregard it. For as you shall answer before God, the great judge of heaven and earth, it will go ill with you if the words of his servant and of his scripture be despised. My text has two parts. The first is very agreeable to my mind and gives me pleasure. The second is terrible in the extreme. But since they are both the truth, they must be preached. The first part of my text is, I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The sentence which I call the black dark and threatening part is this, but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, let us take the first part. Here is a most glorious promise. I'll read it again. Many shall come from the east and west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. I like that text because it tells me what heaven is and gives me a beautiful picture of it. It says it is a place where I shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. What a sweet thought that is for the working man. 
He often wipes the hot sweat from his face, and he wonders whether there is a land where he shall have to toil no longer. He scarcely ever eats a mouthful of bread that is not moistened with the sweat of his brow. Often he comes home weary and flings himself upon his couch, perhaps too tired to sleep. He says, Oh, is there no land where I can rest? Is there no place where I can sit and for once let these weary limbs be still? Is there no land where I can be quiet? Yes, you son of toil and labor, there is a happy land far, far away, where toil and labor are unknown. Beyond yon blue sky there is a city, fair and bright, its walls are jasper, and its light is brighter than the sun. There the weary are at rest, and the wicked cease from troubling. Immortal spirits are yonder, who never wipe sweat from their brow, for they sow not, neither do they reap. They have not to toil and labor." The poet says there on a green and flowery mount their wearied souls shall sit and with transporting joys recount the labors of their feet. To my mind, one of the best views of heaven is that it is a land of rest, especially to the working man. Those who have not to work hard think they will love heaven as a place of service well, that's very true, but to the working man, to the man who toils with his brain or with his hands, it must ever be a sweet thought that there is a land where we shall rest. Soon, this voice will never be strained again. Soon, these lungs will never have to exert themselves beyond their power. Soon, this brain shall not be racked for thought, but I shall sit at the banquet table of God. Yea, I shall recline on the bosom of Abraham and be at ease forever. O oh, weary sons and daughters of Adam, you will not have to drive the plowshare into the unthankful soil in heaven. You will not need to rise to daily toils before the sun has risen and labor when the sun has long ago gone to his rest. But you shall be still. You shall be quiet. You shall rest yourselves. For all are rich in heaven all are happy there, all are peaceful. Toil, trouble, travail, and labor are words that cannot be spelled in heaven. They have no such things there, for they always rest. And mark the, the good company they sit with. They're to sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Some people think that in heaven we shall know nobody. But our text here declares that we shall sit down with them then I am sure that we shall be aware that they are Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I heard of a good woman who asked her husband when she was dying, My dear, do you think you will know me when you and I get to heaven? Shall I know you, he said. Why, I have always known you while I have been here, and do you think I shall be a greater fool when I get to heaven? I, I think it was a very good answer. If we have known one another here, we shall know one another there. I have dear departed friends up there, and it is always a sweet thought to me that when I shall put my foot, as I hope I may, upon the threshold of heaven, there will come my brothers and sisters to clasp me by the hand and say, Yes, you loved one, and you are here. Dear relatives that have been separated, you will meet again in heaven. One of you have lost a mother. She's gone above. And if you follow the track of Jesus, you shall meet her there. Methinks I, I see yet another coming to meet you at the door of paradise. 
and though the ties of natural affection may be in a measure forgotten, if I may be allowed to use a figure, how blessed would she be as she turned to God and said, Here am I and the children that thou hast given me. We shall recognize our friends. Husband, you will know your wife again. Mother, you will know those dear babies of yours. You, you marked their features when they lay panting and gasping for breath. You know how you hung over their graves when the cold sod was sprinkled over them and it was said earth to earth, dust to dust, and ashes to ashes. But you shall hear those loved voices again. You shall hear those sweet voices once more. You shall yet know that those whom you loved have been loved by God. Would not that be a dreary heaven for us to inhabit, where we should be alike, unknowing and unknown? I would not care to go to such a heaven as that. I believe that heaven is a fellowship of the saints, and that we shall know one another there. I have often thought I, I should love to see Isaiah. And as soon as I get to heaven, methinks I would ask for him, because he spoke more of Jesus Christ than all the rest. Oh, I am sure I should want to find George Whitfield. He who so continually preached to the people wore himself out with a more than seraphic zeal. Oh, yes, yes, we shall have choice company in heaven when we get there. There'll be no distinction of learned and unlearned clergy and laity, but we shall walk freely one among another. We shall feel that we are brethren. We shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've heard of a lady who was visited by a minister on her deathbed, and she said to him, I want to ask you one question. Now I'm about to die. Well, said the minister, what is it? Oh, she said in a very affected way, I want to know if there are two places in heaven, because I could not bear that Betsy in the kitchen should be in heaven along with me. Oh, she is so unrefined. The minister turned around and said, um, Don't trouble yourself about that, madam. There is no fear of that, for until you get rid of your accursed pride, you'll never enter heaven at all. Yes, we must all get rid of our pride. We must come down and stand on an equality in the sight of God and see in every man a brother before we can hope to be found in glory. Aye, we bless God. We, we thank him that he will set down no separate table for one and for another. The Jew and the Gentile will sit down together. The great and the small shall feed in the same pasture. And we shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But my text has a yet greater depth of sweetness. For it says that many shall come and shall sit down. Some narrow-minded bigots think that heaven will be a very small place, where there will be a very few people who went to their chapel or their church. I confess I have no wish for a very small heaven, and I love to read in the scriptures that there are many mansions in my Father's house. How often do I hear people say, Ah, Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, and few there be that find it there. There'll be very few in heaven, there'll be more lost. My friend, I, I differ with you. Do you think that Christ will let the devil beat him? That he will let the devil have more in hell than there will be in heaven? No, it's impossible. For then Satan would laugh at Christ. There will be more in heaven than there are among the lost. God says that there will be a number that no man can number who will be saved. But he never says that there will be a number that no man can number that will be lost. 
There will be a host beyond all count who will get into heaven. What glad tidings for you and for me. For if there are so many to be saved, why should not I be saved? Why should not you? Why should not yon man over there in the crowd say, Can I not be one among the multitude? And may not that poor woman there take heart and say, Well, if there were but half a dozen saved... I might fear that I should not be one, but since many are to come, why should not I also be saved? Cheer up, disconsolate. Cheer up, son of mourning, child of sorrow. There is hope for you still. I can never know that any man is past God's grace. There are few that have sinned that that sin that is unto death, and God gives them up. But the vast host of mankind are yet within the reach of sovereign mercy, and many of them shall come from the east and from the west and shall sit down in the kingdom of heaven. Look at my text again, and you will see where these people come from. They are to come from the east and west. The Jews said that they would all come from Palestine, every one of them, every man, woman, and child, that there would not be one in heaven who was not a Jew. And the Pharisees thought that if they were not all Pharisees, they could not be saved. But Jesus Christ said, There will be many who will come from the east and from the west. There will be a multitude from that far-off land of China, for God is doing a great work there, and we hope that the gospel will yet be victorious in that land. There will be a multitude from this western land of England, from the western country beyond the sea in America, and from the south in Australia, and from the north in Canada, Siberia, Russia, from the uttermost parts of the earth there shall come many to sit down in the kingdom of God. But I do not think this text is to be understood so much geographically as spiritually. When it says that they shall come from the east and west, I think perhaps it refers to not nations particularly, but to different kinds of people. The east and the west could signify those who are the very furthest off from religion, and yet many of them will be saved and get to heaven. There's a class of persons who will always be looked upon as hopeless. Many a time I have heard a man or woman say of such a one, he cannot be saved, he's too abandoned. What is he good for? Ask him to go to a place of worship? Why, he was drunk on Saturday night. What would be the use of reasoning with him? There's no hope for him. He's a hardened fellow. See what he has done these many years? What good will it be to speak to him? Now, Hear this, you who think your fellows worse than yourselves, you who condemn others, whereas you are often just as guilty. Jesus Christ says, many shall come from the east and west. There will be many in heaven that were drunkards once. I believe among that blood-bought throng there are many who reeled in and out of taverns half their lifetime, but by the power of divine grace... They were able to dash the liquor cup to the ground. They renounced the riot of intoxication. They fled away from it and served God. Yes, there'll be many in heaven who are drunkards on earth. There'll be many harlots. Some of the most abandoned will be found there. You remember the story of Whitfield's once saying that there would be some in heaven who were the devil's castaways, some that the devil would hardly think good enough for him, and yet whom Christ would save. Lady Huntingdon once gently hinted that such language was not quite proper, but just at the time there happened to be heard 
come a, a ring at the bell, and Whitfield went downstairs. Afterwards he came up and said, Your ladyship, what do you think a poor woman had to say to me just now? She was a sad profligate, and she said, Oh, Mr. Whitfield, when you were preaching, you told us that Christ would take in the devil's castaways, and, and I am one of them. And that was the means of her lady's salvation. Shall anybody ever check us from preaching to the lowest of the low? I have been accused of getting all the rabble of London around me. God bless the rabble. God save the rabble. Then say I, but suppose they are the rabble. Who, who need the gospel more than they do? Who require to have Christ preach to them more than they do? We have lots of those who preach to ladies and gentlemen, and we want someone to preach to the rabble in these degenerate days. Oh, here is comfort for me, for many of the rabble are to come from the east and from the west. Oh, what would you think if you were to see the difference between some that are in heaven and some that shall be there? There might be found one whose hair hangs across his eyes. His locks are matted. He looks horrible. His, his bloated eyes start from his face. He, he grins almost like an idiot. He's drunk away his very brain until life seems to have departed so far as, as sense and being are concerned. Yet I would tell to you, that man is capable of salvation. And in a few years, I might say, look up yonder. You see that bright star? Discern you that man with a crown of pure gold upon his head? Do you notice that being clad in robes of sapphire and in garments of light, that is the self-same man who sat there, a poor, benighted, almost idiotic being? And yet sovereign grace and mercy have saved him. There are none except those, as I have said before, who have sinned the unpardonable sin who are beyond God's mercy. Fetch me out the worst, and still I would preach the gospel to them. Fetch me out the vilest, still I would preach to them, because I recollect my master said, Go ye out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. Many shall come from the east and west, yes, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. There's one more word I must notice before I have done with this sweet portion. That is the word shall. Oh, I love God's shalls and wills. There's nothing comparable to them. Let a man say shall. What is it good for? I will, says man, but he never performs. I shall, says he, and he, he breaks his promise. But it is never so with God's shalls. If he says shall, it shall be. When he says will, it will be. Now he has said here, many shall come. The devil says they shall not come, but they shall come. Their sins say you can't come. God says you shall come. You yourself say we won't come. God says you shall come. Yes, there are some here who are laughing at salvation, who can scoff at Christ, mock at the gospel. But I tell you, some of you shall come yet. What, you say? Can God make me become a Christian? I tell you, yes. For in this rests the power of the gospel. It does not ask your consent, but it gets it. It does not say, will you have it? But it makes you willing in the day of God's power. And not against your will, but it makes you willing. It shows you its value. And then you fall in love with it. And straightway you run after it 
and you have it. Many people have said, we will not have anything to do with religion, yet they, they have been converted. I heard of a man who once went to chapel to hear the singing, and as soon as the minister began to preach, he put his fingers in his ears and would not listen, but by and by, <laughs> a tiny insect settled on his face so that he was obliged to take one finger out of his ear to brush it away. And just then the minister said, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. And the man heard, he listened, and God met with him at that moment to his soul's conversion. He went out a new man, a changed character. He who came in to laugh, retired to pray. He who came in to mock, went out to bend his knee in penitence. He who entered to spend an idle hour went home to spend an hour in devotion with his God. The sinner became a saint. The profligate became a penitent. Who knows, but that there may not be some like that here. The gospel wants you not to give your consent. It, it, it gives it, and it gets it. <laughs> it knocks the enmity out of your heart. You say, I don't want to be saved. Christ says you shall be. He makes your will turn around and then you cry, Lord, save me or I perish. Ah, might heaven exclaim, I knew I would make you say that. And then he rejoices over you because he has changed your will and made you willing in the day of his power. If Jesus Christ were to stand on this platform tonight, what would many people do with him? Oh, say some, we would make him a king. I don't believe it. They would crucify him again if they had the opportunity. If he were to come and say, here I am, I love you. Will you be saved by me? Not one of you would consent if you were left to your will. If he should look upon you with those eyes before whose power the lion would have crouched, if he spoke with that voice which poured forth a cataract of eloquence like a stream of nectar rolling down from the cliffs above, not a single person would come to be his disciple. No, it needs the power of the Spirit to make men come to Jesus Christ. He himself said, no man can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draw him. Ah, we need that. And here we have it. They shall come. They shall come. Oh, you may laugh. You may despise us. But Jesus Christ shall not die for nothing. If some of you reject him, there are some who will not. If there are some that are not saved, others shall be. Christ shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Some think that Christ died and yet that some for whom he died will be lost. I never could understand that doctrine. If Jesus, my surety, bore my griefs and carried my sorrows, I believe myself to be as secure as the angels in heaven. God cannot ask payment twice. If Christ paid my debt, shall I have to pay it again? No. As the poet said, free from sin I walk at large. The Savior's blood's my full discharge. At his dear feet content I lay, a sinner saved, an homage pay. Now they shall come, they shall come, and nothing in heaven nor on earth nor in hell can stop them from coming. And now, you chief of sinners, list one moment while I call you to Jesus. 
There is one person here tonight who thinks himself the worst soul that ever lived. There's one who says to himself, I do not deserve to be called to Christ, I'm sure. Well, soul, I call you. You lost, most wretched outcast, this night by authority given to me of God. I call you to come to my Savior. Some time ago, when I went into the county court to see what they were doing, I heard a man's name called out, and immediately the man said, Make way, make way, they call me. And up he came. Now, now I call the chief of sinners tonight, and let him say, let him say, Make way, make way, doubts, make way, fears, make way, sins. Christ calls me, and if Christ calls me, that is enough. Another song, I'll to his gracious feet approach, whose scepter mercy gives. Perhaps he may command my touch, and then the suppliant lives. I can but perish if I go. I am resolved to try, for if I stay away, I know I must forever die. But should I die with mercy sought, when I, the king, have tried, that were to die, delightful thought, as sinner never died. Go and try, my Savior. Go and try, my Savior. If he casts you away after you have sought him, tell it in the pit that Christ would not hear you, but that you shall never be allowed to do. It would dishonor the mercy of the covenant for God to cast away one penitent sinner. And it shall never be, while it is written, many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That concludes part one. Do come back and have your friends come back to hear part two. In fact, they should hear part one also. Do spread these words around. These messages weren't meant just weren't meant for just saved and happy and contented people. They're they're meant for the lost. Charles Spurgeon preached to the lost. Would you please tell a sinner about these messages that you're hearing. Let them listen to this and be saved. He being dead, Charles Spurgeon, yet speaketh. That's all we have time for today. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. This audio is being released on the 20th of January, 2023. Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.